The Old Pilot's Plane Tales, The Coupang Kit The landing gear or undercarriage of a big airliner is a massive and powerful system. Designed to support an aircraft that can weigh several hundred tons, it must not only carry the machine around the airfield whilst it taxis from one place to another, but it must be able to withstand the shock of landing. On a normal day, the gear of an aircraft like the Boeing 747-400 will happily cope with a landing weight of over 650,000 pounds, that's nearly 300 tonnes, whilst being dropped onto the runway at up to 10 feet per second. A normal landing would be only 2 to 3 feet per second. It's also capable of landing in an emergency at much higher weights, around 875,000 pounds, nearly 400 tonnes, so long as the landing is kept to a maximum of 6 feet per second. Carrying the aircraft's weight at touchdown is only part of the job, though. The gear will have to cope with extreme stresses fore and aft during braking, particularly if it's a rejected takeoff at maximum takeoff weight. Side forces during a crosswind landing and twisting forces as the pilot puts his massive aircraft down at speeds akin to a Formula One racing car tearing down a straight. The gear can cope partly because the weight of the airliner is spread across several sets of wheels, each securely fastened with a robust mounting system of struts and axles, each with powerful multi-disc brakes. The individual weight of this complex assembly will be around 6,500 pounds, around 3 tonnes, which, since there are four main gear assemblies on the 747, adds up to something like 26,000 pounds, 12 tonnes of weight. Building such a monster set of wheels would be hard enough, but this particular system must be able to disappear into the wings and fuselage, leaving a smooth and streamlined surface that shows no sign of the vast and complex undercarriage hidden from view. Accomplishing this magic trick thousands upon thousands of times a day as airliners around the world clean up after takeoff and drop the gear before landing would be enough to make the likes of Harry Houdini blanch. At the risk of revealing the method behind the trick, the number of different designs are manifold and go from a simple hinging upwards to a complex shrinking, twisting and folding that might defeat an origami expert in order to fit into as small a space as possible within the airframe. Moving the gear up and down is, of course, only part of the problem. The whole kit and caboodle has to be neatly covered by a complex jigsaw of doors, most of which are only opened when the gear is in transit. Everything is powered by high-pressure hydraulic rams which work with enormous force, particularly when you have to swing tons of gleaming high-tensile steel, hot brakes and heavily reinforced tyres filled to 14 times atmospheric pressure around. The undercarriage bays that house the retracted gear are small and crowded with the pipes and wiring that feed the hydraulic cylinders and the complex electrical control systems that move the assemblies, their locking latches and brakes. 
Unlike the comfortable aircraft cabin, these bays are unpressurized and unheated, so at the high altitudes airliners cruise at, they will only be filled with the thin and freezing air that exists in the stratosphere, where temperatures can reach below minus 70 degrees centigrade, that's minus 94 degrees Fahrenheit. Even on a warm day, the temperature won't be much above minus 40. Mountaineers refer to the heights above 26,000 feet as the death zone, a region where it is believed that no human body can acclimatise. The partial pressure of oxygen there is insufficient to sustain human life for an extended period. The FAA indicate that, at this height, the time of useful consciousness is only around three to five minutes. The normal cruise altitude of an airliner will often be around 10,000 feet higher, where the time lowers to as little as 30 seconds. Faced with these conditions, the body will generally suffer an appalling list of dangerous symptoms, which include dizziness, breathlessness, headaches, vomiting, body pain, blistering and purpling of the hands and feet, swelling of the brain and fluid accumulation in the lungs, although some of these effects will occur after unconsciousness. The ultimate symptom will be heart failure, leading to death. Cold is another killer. A reduction of body core temperature by only one and a half degrees is the start, and if the situation isn't resolved, the heart rate, breathing rate and blood pressure will all increase as the body tries to compensate. There will be a change of mental state with amnesia, confusion and a loss of fine motor skill. And if the situation continues, the initial response will be reversed as the body starts to shut down. At the sort of temperatures found in the wheel wells of an airliner, freezing and destruction of the body's tissue will occur, most of which will be irreversible. Death will ultimately follow. Stowaways have been trying to obtain free passage on ships for millennia, although the term as applied to people only stretches back to 1794 and the king of Spain's polizon denomination. From 1843 onwards, the term could be found in the Convention of International Maritime Traffic, which states that they are a person who is secreted on a ship without the consent of the ship owners or the master. The fate of such interlopers can be tragic, as is found in the story of the Greenock Stowaways. Six boys, aged between 11 and 16 and a young man of 22, hid on the cargo ship Arran, sailing from Scotland to Quebec in 1868. Once discovered, they were cruelly treated, lashed, beaten, starved, sometimes stripped naked and doused with ice-cold seawater. They were horribly ill-treated and even tortured. When the ship became ice-bound, despite their lack of proper clothing or shoes, the captain ordered that six of them be put onto the ice to trek to the distant shore in their bare feet. Two of the youngest died on the ice, but the rest, snow-blind and with lacerated feet, were discovered by local Newfoundlanders and rescued. 
In modern times, stowaways, as you may have surmised by now, have frequently attempted to hide within the undercarriage wheel wells of airliners. The chances of surviving such an ordeal are remote in the extreme as the hazards are many. If someone attempting such a dangerous journey isn't crushed by the movement of the gear as it stows or fall to their death when the undercarriage doors open to raise or lower the gear, then the environment will present an almost insurmountable hazard. A little incomplete record of stowaways who have attempted this incredibly risky venture shows a fairly constant stream since the mid-40s, totalling at least 98. Survival in the early days was a little more likely, since those airliners flew lower and the journeys were shorter, but in the days of jet travel, the chance of death has become more certain. For some, this terrifying ordeal ended quite quickly when the floor of their hiding place turned out to be an undercarriage door which opened beneath them as the pilots raised the gear after takeoff. Some were crushed, but the vast majority died during the high-level flight when the extreme conditions overcame them and their bodies frequently fell from their hiding place when the gear was lowered for landing. There are, however, a few remarkable stories of survival. Juan Carlos Guzman Betancourt was a career criminal thought to have stolen over $1 million in various countries from Canada to Japan. In 1993, the 17-year-old flew in the wheel well of a Douglas DC-8 from Bogota to Miami, and apart from some frostbite, he arrived quite fit. He was found standing on the runway of Miami Airport, claiming to be a 13-year-old orphan who had clung to the undercarriage of the aircraft. That unlikely story generated an outpouring of sympathy and gifts from generous Americans, and tens of thousands of dollars in donations flowed into a support fund. After he fled with the cash, it emerged that Guzman Betancourt was actually 17 years old with two healthy parents. He was convicted of theft and fraud in several countries, but frequently escaped or was extradited only to con money from new victims. A more deserving survivor was a Cuban refugee named Victor Alvarez Molina. In 2003, he made it to Montreal in the wheel well of a DC-10 after enduring four hours in temperatures that dropped below minus 40. His saving grace was a leak in an air conditioning pipe which seeped warm air into his hiding place. The pipe also gave him a grab handle to hold on to when the landing gear deployed. Molina stumbled onto the tarmac of Duval Airport, exhausted, hypothermic and unable to speak. The Canadians showed him their kindness when he was granted refugee status and allowed to stay. Last we heard, he'd got a job as a mechanic and was taking French lessons whilst he dreamed of bringing his family to Canada to join him. The world's very first undercarriage stowaway that we have records of tells us about a young Indonesian boy called Bazwi. 
He had grown up as an orphan who survived the Japanese occupation of Timor during the Second World War. The island lies about 400 miles, around 650 kilometres, northwest of Darwin, the capital town of Australia's Northern Territories. Following the surrender of the Allied forces from Britain, Australia and the Dutch East India Company to the Japanese, a contingent of several hundred Australian commandos, aided by the locals, continued to wage a six-month guerrilla war, inflicting heavy casualties on the Japanese forces. Eventually, the Australians were forced to evacuate, leaving the Timorese to face the Japanese alone. Bravely, they continued to resist, but paid a heavy price, and tens of thousands of Timorese civilians died as a result of the Japanese occupation. Baz Wee worked in the kitchens at Kupang Airport for food, but it wasn't a happy life, as he was often beaten and abused. He remembered the Australians' liberation of Timor during the war and their kindness as they offered him bully beef and sweets and gave him rides in their trucks. He watched the aircraft come and go from the rough airport and when, in August 1946, he heard that a Dutch Air Force C-47 that had recently landed was heading next to Darwin, the 12-year-old decided to escape. He crept up to the airliner, but the cabin door was locked, so he looked for another way in. Clambering up onto one of the big tyres, he peered inside the spacious wheel well, and he thought he could hide there, so he climbed up. Undiscovered, he waited in the dark interior while the crew and passengers boarded, and then, with a belch of unburnt fuel and smoky exhaust, the big Pratt & Whitney twin wasp engines started. Lying only a few feet from the 14-cylinder engines, the noise and vibration must have been unbearable, but he held his nerve and clung on as the aircraft began to rumble along the taxi. It didn't take long before the 11-ton machine began to bounce its way down the runway, getting faster and faster before smoothly easing away as it climbed into the sky. Then, with a loud screech, the hydraulic piston started to move, retracting the spinning wheel below him, and it began to rise into his hiding place. Buffeted by the slipstream, he scrambled back out of the way into a tiny space, only ten inches deep and twenty inches high, between a fuel tank and the searing hot engine exhaust. The tyre ground against his back, tearing the skin from his shoulder blade, and he lay bleeding, fighting back his panic. Unable to move, he was trapped against the exhaust that was baking him on one side, whilst the freezing cold air blown by the big propeller froze the other. Mercifully, Bazwi fell unconscious. For three hours he lay wedged in between the struts of the engine nacelle until the C-47 lined up on the main runway at Darwin and lowered its gear. Still unconscious, it was pure luck that the skinny boy stayed in place during the landing until, whilst putting the wheel chocks in, the ground crew saw him hanging there close to death. 
for three months. The doctors and nurses in the Darwin Hospital treated his burns and lacerations, and all the time the newspapers were writing stories about his remarkable survival, calling him the Kupang Kid. At the time, the Australian people were shocked and amazed that this brave little boy had gone through so much to try to get to Australia. There was a wave of affection for Baz Wee and all that he'd gone through, losing his parents, suffering through the Japanese occupation, and then escaping to try and find a new life with the only people who'd ever shown him kindness. He was taken in by the administrator of the Northern Territories, whilst word was sent to Government House in Canberra. In the meantime, Baz was sent to school, and he turned out to be an excellent student, getting on socially and growing into a much-loved member of the community. However, there was a major hurdle to overcome. At the time, because Australia had a whites-only immigration policy, he shouldn't have been allowed to stay, and there were people who thought it dangerous to create a precedent by circumventing the law. They argued that they might be inundated with undesirable migrants if they allowed Bazoui to stay. The Minister for Immigration, Mr Colwell, gave the case special consideration, and because of his circumstances as an orphan and a minor, Bazoui was allowed to stay. Indeed, a Darwin couple agreed to adopt him. Twelve years after his arrival, the Kupang kid was naturalised. He got a job at the Commonwealth Works Department, and when he turned 24, Baz Wee met a pretty young white girl from Perth. After a year-long courtship, the two were married in the Roman Catholic Church, where Baz Wee had once served as an altar boy. They went on to raise a family of five children. When asked by his kids about the large scar on his back, his daughter said that her father would tell them it was where a big butterfly had landed, and not that it was from the plane's exhaust pipe. After a long and happy life in the country he loved and that had adopted him, the Kupang kid finally passed away in 2016, at the age of 80. If you enjoyed that story and would like to support us, then why not leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or a podcatcher of your choice. Plane Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy show. You can find us at AirlinePilotGuy.com.